Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Book Lounge. Today, we are talking about "The Obstacle Is the Way" by Ryan Holiday. Your hosts, as always, are myself, Corinne Ritchie, and me, Tom Butler Bowden. Um, as you know by now, every week we look at a great nonfiction book from past or present, and we dissect it and analyze it and give our thoughts on it. Um, so hopefully you will get some good takeaways from it, or it'll just be something to make you think. Yep. And um, every week I weigh in on the book, update you on the latest news about the title and the author. And as always, be sure to check out our Book Insights episodes. That's where we'll have the really in-depth explorations of these best nonfiction books. But here in the Book Lounge is just an informal chat about the book of the week. Um, this week, we are having our first returning guest. Super excited for you to be back with us here in the Book Lounge. He did such a great job on our last Book Insight about Stoic philosophy. We wanted to bring him back for today's episode as well. Um, he's been featured by Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, the BBC, many others for his expertise on stoicism. He's an author, speaker, and psychotherapist who teaches stoic mindfulness and resilience trainings. Welcome back, Donald Robertson. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here once again. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. But more, You can never have too much stoicism, I like to say. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so this week, I mean, in the past, we've looked at uh, Stoic classics like mm -hmm. Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. So this week, we're changing tack a bit, looking at this book, The Obstacle is the Way, uh, a relatively recent book by Ryan Holiday, which takes Stoic principles um, and he applies them to everyday life and he throws in a ton of examples of people from history. Um, now, Donald... You, I believe you know Ryan, is that right? I or, do. Oh, oh, goodness, actually. So for full disclosure, Ryan has the same <laughs> agent as me. Oh. So, <laughs> but I'll be objective right. in my appraisal. I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be scathing in my critique of his book, no doubt. That's all but we I ask. do. I'm, friend, I'm friends with Ryan. Oh, very um, nice. He sent me a skull. I like to say he sent me a skull in the post once, but that's not entirely true. He has these coins that have little skulls on them, Memento Mori coins. He sent me one of those in the post once. Oh, cute. Ah, Memento Mori. Just a reminder for the uh, people who don't know about Stoicism. A reminder of your death that mm. uh, often the generals and so on had, or they'd get someone to whisper in their <laughs> ear. That's right. So it would, it would bring them down to earth. Mm. Uh, yes, uh, that's a service. A very, we can offer that service here yeah. on the Book Insights uh, podcast. You know, we can just let our listeners and viewers know someday you will die. That's your reminder for the day. That's your reminder. Just a keep, light it, reminder. keep it in mind. <laughs> yes. Um, now, the, the let's start with the title, I think, The Obstacle is the Way. Where does it come from? Well, it's from a Marcus Aurelius, uh, his writings, um, and... Of course, Marcus Aurelius, you know, is famous for um, fighting off the barbarians or, you know, the Marcomanni and so on, uh, trying to preserve Rome. And here's something that Marcus wrote to kick us off. Our actions may be impeded, but there can be no impeding our intentions or dispositions. The mind adapts and converts to its own purposes the obstacle to our acting. The impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. Uh, Donald, um, this, so we, we, talk, we started off talking about death, but really this whole book is about 
action and how we deal with obstacles um, in life. So perhaps to start us off, um, you know, what what did Marcus Aurelius, um, what was his basic philosophy, do you think, about obstacles? Oh, my goodness. Well, actually, you know, there's uh, when we're reading Marcus Aurelius, sometimes it looks like it's kind of casual, like he's just doing these little notes or whatever. When I first started doing Stoicism, like it's 25 years ago now, I remember when my friend saying, well, these are just kind of random notes that he's made. There's not really a system to it. But actually, there is an underlying system, and it's more obvious in the Greek. And he uses a Greek technical term when he's referring to this philosophy of action. He uses the the really kind of obscure term, hupexeresis, um, which is difficult to translate into. It's as difficult to translate as it is to pronounce. <laughs> so it's... Well, well uh, <laughs> have a go. It's usually translated as the reserve clause, which maybe isn't that enlightening. And what it means, it sounds like it's a kind of legal term or something like that in Greek. It means um, that we should undertake uh, every action. Seneca explains this as well with the caveat, fate permitting or God willing or if nothing prevents me. And you'll see this theme kind of recurring through the Stoic literature. Um, there's a place where Marcus describes his philosophy of action and uh he says that this is one of the main components of it, that every action should be undertaken with this reserve clause. So I will fly to Toronto, for example, if nothing uh, prevents me from doing so. So in, it's interesting because it parallels something we find in modern psychotherapy. And Tom, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Albert Ellis's work. He's one of the pioneers mm -hmm. of cognitive therapy. And the very simplified version of what Ellis said is that he thought all of our psychological problems or emotional problems were caused by rigid absolutistic demands that we have to forceful demands i must get to toronto and we should generally replace those with flexible preferences which would go along the lines of i would really like to go to toronto but if something prevents me it's not the end of the world and that flexible preference is very similar to what the stoics mean by the reserve clause so every obstacle really is assimilated. There's always a, a, we're always prepared in advance as Stoics for obstacles and ready to adapt to them. And beyond even what Ellis says, the Stoics see impediments to action or obstacles as opportunities, um, not just for creatively problem solving and finding another alternative, but actually for developing certain character traits, which they consider to be the really important thing in life. So for instance, an obstacle to action might require that you develop the virtue of patience, for instance. And the Stoics would say, well, actually, the really important thing uh, is not necessarily to even overcome the obstacle, but to have acquired these admirable personality traits like patience, self-discipline, endurance, and so on. And so Marcus, in another passage, says, do not say that this is misfortune which he might have said about what you're calling an obstacle or an impediment. Do not say that this is misfortune, but to say, but re say rather that to bear it well becomes good fortune. Like, so it's an opportunity, in other words, to develop the, the virtues. So it's not about success at all. It's everything yeah. comes down to character development. Yeah. That's and, the true success. Yeah. And I do wonder if sometimes maybe people might misinterpret what the obstacle is the way means perhaps, but really uh, the Stoics say, well, every obstacle presents you with the opportunity to develop positive uh, virtuous character traits, actually. 
you know. And so they say this is why the, the sage, the sophos, the wise man or woman is un, unconquerable in a sense. Because no matter what life throws at them, they always potentially have the opportunity. There's another metaphor that he uses where he says the mind, it's a lovely metaphor, it's a very vivid metaphor. It's kind of buried in the meditations though. He says, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about the hoopexeresis. And he says, the mind of the sage is like a blazing fire. And this is a, an analogy that recurs throughout his writings. It's uh, the Stoics believe that the universe is made of this kind of fire. Like the mind of the sage is like a blazing fire. And he says, whereas a small, weak fire might be put out if you throw a, a, a load of uh, wood on top of it, it might put the fire out. A blazing fire just consumes everything you throw at it and it blazes higher. So he says, the mind of the sage is like that. You know, everything you throw at it, any obstacle, it just becomes fuel to it to exercise more and more patience, more and more determination, more and more virtue. It's kind of unstoppable in a sense because external success isn't what it's aiming at anyway. What it's really aiming at is just to develop its own inner strength. Yeah, that's mm. great. I mean, so in, in your analogy then, getting to Toronto, that's neither here nor there. You'll get there yeah. or you won't one way or the other. But the development of patience on your way to Toronto, uh -huh. that is the, that's the real goal. That's the real success. The real goal is to become the kind of person that copes well with setbacks and is unfazed by them, like that the Stoics would say. And if you imagine... You know, many things in Stoicism can be understood as adopting a longer term view or looking back over the whole of your life. <clears throat> and now maybe decades from now, uh, looking back on life, I might think, did it really matter that much whether I actually made it to Toronto that week or if I had to wait a few months, it didn't. You know, but maybe what matters is the kind of that I, I had over the course of life become the type of person that could take things like that in their stride and adapt to them, be unfazed by them be more important mm. than like whether I, I managed to make the trip in a particular day or not, perhaps. Mm. Yeah. So I think what you're talking about here is uh, Ryan Holiday calls it the discipline of perception. <clears throat> um, I guess it goes back to Epictetus to, um, you know, nothing, events in themselves don't matter. It's how, um, it's the way we see things. And Holiday He's got a lot of um, historical examples uh, in the book. Uh, one of them is um, John D. Rockefeller, um, the great oil baron. And he sort of traces his life in miniature and shows how, you know, he went through the Civil War, all these financial crises. Um, but he always just waited and waited for things to go bad in the economy or whatever and then took opportunities um, and he mentions this Stoic word, apatheia. Um, could you elaborate on on what that means? Yeah, <clears throat> actually, it's a good bit of confusing terminology. It's a good opportunity to address a misconception about Stoicism, right? Because the Stoics use the word pathos to describe passion or emotion. And, uh, and so some people misinterpret Stoicism is meaning that we should be unemotional, like a stone or a statue. Um, because the the word uh, apatheia is uh, derived from pathos, and it means a, means not, or the absence of something. So apatheia means the absence of uh, pathos, freedom from pathos. Uh, and so some people yeah. think, well, does that mean being unemotional, like a kind of robot, like Mr. Spock? Or something like that yeah. off the off the Star Trek, and uh, it's that's a, partly a mistranslation because really 
the funnily enough, the other word that we derive, we derive the word passion from pathos, but there's another word, Tom, that's uh, etymologically derived from pathos. And that's a word, it's a word that's very close to my heart. It's the word pathological. Like, <laughs> so the word pathological, because the word, the, bizarrely, in Greek, the word pathos both means passion, desire, which includes desires and emotions. It also means suffering or disease. Oh, like, so the connotation is that the, the Stoics, although the word can sometimes be used differently, particularly in Stoicism, pathos is used to describe irrational, excessive, and unhealthy desires and emotions. And that's clear because the Stoics elsewhere say that there's a whole categorization they have of eupathei, and eu means good, like eulogy or something like that, or euphoric. So there are good, healthy, moderate, and rational emotions and desires that Stoics think we should cultivate. And actually, they talk about them a lot, like Marcus refers to them many times in the meditation. So they're like, no, there's a whole bunch of healthy emotions. We're not saying get rid of all emotions. We just think you should replace the unhealthy, irrational, excessive ones with these healthy, moderate, rational ones. And so apatheia does not mean freedom from all passions. Like it doesn't mean being apathetic. So we, the English word that we derive from it today is apathy or apathetic. That means something slightly different. It's a corruption of the original Greek. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's very misleading. Um, and really apatheia to me, actually that very word itself, kind of, how can I put it? It, it almost sounds like the word therapy um, because it specifically implies getting rid of unhealthy emotions or overcoming unhealthy emotions. So apathy like literally describes the goal of psychotherapy, um, you know, not yeah. the, the goal of becoming like a stone or a robot. And actually that metaphor that I'm using is found throughout the Stoic literature. They, they had the same problem and they repeatedly, consistently say, our goal is not to become like a, a man of stone or someone with a heart of stone or iron. Epictetus, for example, uh, uses that phrase when he's distancing himself from this idea of being unemotional. That's mm. a really useful differentiation. I think people will be uh, really interested to hear that because there is that sort of connotation yeah. of when you use the word stoic, it's a yeah. it's like a synonym for being blank and unemotional. So I think that's really useful information. That's mm. what I'm like, Natch, you know, very blank and unemotional, as you can see. <laughs> like, you know, I don't have any sense of humor at all or anything like that. But actually, you know, one of the best ways I've found over the years of addressing misconceptions, or you can argue about them and analyze the texts and stuff, but sometimes there's an easy way to counter things. And with Stoicism, it is that Stoicism is very much a Socratic philosophy. Um, Socrates is the godfather of Stoicism, and they, they constantly refer back to him. Epictetus tells his students over and over again that they should emulate Socrates. Now, the funny thing is, nobody, nobody thinks that Socrates was like a rock or a stone and completely unemotional. Although, funnily enough, uh, another historian, Diogenes Laertius, says that the Stoics derived the concept of apatheia, the word that you use, from a guy called the very Socrates. So they said it was Socrates that introduced this idea of apatheia that the Stoics developed. But Socrates is a very humorous individual and very gregarious, so it seemed bizarre to compare him to Mr. What's his name? Mr. Spock of Star Trek. Right. They're not easily confused. If you walked into a bar tomorrow, Karen, like, and Socrates was there and Mr. Spock was there, you definitely wouldn't get them mixed up with one another. 
Like, they're two completely contrasting individuals. Mm. Apart from the pointy yeah, ears. One. True, true. Look for the <laughs> yeah. ears, yep. Look for the ears. <laughs> Uh, it reminds me what you were saying. In Buddhism, they have this phrase, disturbing emotions. Uh-huh. Um, and they, it's very um, distinct from emotions that can enable you. Disturbing emotions hold you back from leading a full life and fulfilling your potential. And you're enthralled to these emotions. And it stops you from being able to give more to other people and you know, see opportunities when they arise. Um, so I just, yeah, I just saw a, a parallel there. Yeah, there are many parallels, I think, between Buddhism and Stoicism. Um, and in a way, many of these insights are kind of almost common sense. Uh, they're a kind mm. of perennial philosophy because, and people think, well, it's amazing that these guys arrive at the same conclusions. Is it though? <laughs> it's not surprising. Like, they're obviously, <laughs> turns out we've got a lot of unhealthy limiting emotions. Like, mm-hmm. and, you know, guys in India figured that out, and there's the guys in Greece that arrived at the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we obviously do, right? Mm-hmm. And they said much more nuanced things about it as well. And funnily enough, they didn't think the goal of life was to be like a robot because no one in their right mind would think that that's a suitable goal for life, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, of course, the Stoics didn't believe that. Like, it wouldn't have survived as a philosophy for 500 years if that's what they were teaching because people would have thought, well, that's not really much of a goal, yeah, is it? too boring. Right? Yeah, it's a bit boring. <laughs> um, let's get back to what we started with, this flexibility and persistence uh-huh. in the face of obstacles. Um Ryan Holiday, well, there's this discipline of, um, he's got these three disciplines he talks about. Yeah. And one of them is the discipline of action. Uh They all come from Stoicism. And he mentions his main example is the Greek orator Demosthenes and his sort of life, Demosthenes' sort of um, rather interesting life. Yeah. Donald, you want to say in, in a nutshell why he uses this example here? Why does he use it? Demosthenes is a fascinating guy, actually, and he's of interest. And also, I was going to say, just in passing, I'll preface, preface this a bit by saying, you know, you I was surprised, Tom, you should have said this, that uh, the style of this book resembles many older self-help books that consist of these anecdotes about famous historical figures. And actually, yeah. you know, it goes all the way back, perhaps, to Plutarch's lives and books like that, but certainly 19th century uh, self-help books would often talk about successful figures and what we could learn from and so Holiday's book great men. Yeah. yeah these great men is, is a very kind of old-fashioned um, sort of style of self-help book in a, in a way it's interesting it's like a um, redoing of, of this reintroduction of that for the modern era but mm. uh, Demosthenes um, was a, an, an orator he had the unfortunate nickname of the anus Apparently, that's I'm not kidding. Like the Greeks, the ancient Greeks could be quite brutal. Uh, so he got this nickname. Apparently, it had something to do with the nature of his voice. So he had a kind of strange speech impediment, and uh, he had difficulty speaking. So people thought this guy's like the world's worst orator. Like he's rubbish. <laughs> and uh, his parents, he had a terrible tragedy. His parents were very wealthy, and they died when he was a, a legal minor. And so trustees took over like uh his wealth actually it reminds me of the movie citizen kane a little bit you know like so these uh these guys were responsible for his family fortune and they they do you know what they did tom they blew it all like they squandered it like and so he was uh he took them to court 
And in ancient Athens, you had to represent yourself normally in court by giving elaborate speeches. And it was an epic fail because he was rubbish. Like, because he had this uh, horrible speaking voice and stuff. And he made several attempts. He studied speech writing, but he still wasn't successful. And apparently they laughed him out of court. And on the way out, an, an, an elderly actor approached him. And he said, I thought you, you made some really good points there. And he goes, but your problem is your delivery. And Demosthenes said, well, what do you mean? And the guy said, give me your speech. Like he had it written down. And this guy, guy who was a tragedian, an actor, delivered his speech back to him. He goes, this is how I would have read it. Like an actor would, like, you've got to put passion in your voice and so on, blah, blah, blah. And Demosthenes thought, I need to learn how to deliver speeches like an actor to cultivate my voice. And he did these crazy vocal exercises, Tom. I don't know if you remember some of them. He would recite speeches um, while he was running and out of breath. He would allegedly stand on the beach in the middle of a storm, yelling his speeches over the noise of the crashing waves to practice strengthening his voice. He would put pebbles in his mouth and practice oratory. And he did something else, Tom. He shaved half of his hair off and he went to live in a cave because he said, I'm not coming out of here like, until I've mastered the art of oratory. And to make it uh, hard for him, he put himself in a voluntary lockdown by shaving half his hair off so he would be too embarrassed to go outside until his hair had regrown. He thought, I'm going to have to sit in here, hunker down and practice giving speeches like, until I've nailed this. And he did it obsessively. And he went on mm. to win his case. And the irony was that all the money was gone by this time. Um, but in one of the reversals of fortune that the Greeks love in their tragedies, although he, he won his case and all the money had gone, he thought, well, what was the point of that then? He became a highly sought-after legal advocate and uh, earned his fortune as a, a trainer uh, in oratory the Athenian use and became an, an, influ an influential figure in Athenian politics. So uh, he, they, these reversals illustrate the point, the obstacle is the way. Um, so this terrible impediment that he had actually propelled him through incredible self-discipline and determination to become the greatest of orators. Mm. And the fact that the money was already squandered seems like another impediment, but then that just propelled him into a highly successful legal career as he began to sell mm. his services to other people he was unstoppable this guy with half of his hair shaved off and uh, that people <laughs> laughed at and called the anus yeah so again a worldly failure uh -huh. actually was the, was the making of him yeah um, and that's another mm. great takeaway for our viewers or our listeners. If you're having trouble concentrating at home, uh, just shave half your head shave your and then boom, you got no choice but to concentrate and uh, stay home because you can't go out. So No more distractions. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, Donald, the last um, few weeks, we've, we've covered uh, a couple of books um, on the sort of Navy SEAL training gurus. We did this book, Extreme Ownership. Uh-huh. And we did the one, Dave Goggins. Can't hurt me, um, yeah. Can't hurt me, yeah. Uh -huh. And the, the Demosthenes story reminded me of the sort of extreme yeah. lengths that, that people go to now. Um, and I think those both those stories, um, they're definitely not about worldly success. They're, they're, these are people who are driven um, to sort of overcome themselves, really. Mm-hmm. Um, show themselves what they are capable of, often coming from a background where they didn't have any particular advantages or 
Mm. In fact, you know, they, they were repressed or, or abused in some way. Um, so they, they, these current books remind me a lot of Obstacle of, is the Way and um, the whole sort of stoic approach to, uh, to personal development. I think there's something about the military culture that actually lends itself to this. There's a great deal that I, you know, uh, I could perhaps say, but I don't think it's a coincidence. And um, we, you know, we're doing. I'm organising a military conference at the moment. You know, I've done a number of webinars and things for the the military uh, over the past few years. I went to Quantico to speak at the U.S. Marine Corps University about Stoicism and about Socrates. And one of the things mm. that they're always interested in is uh, it's strange that people don't realise that Socrates was a soldier. Um, because not only was he a soldier, but I would say some people might argue about this, but this is my 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 view is that Socrates. Uh, the evidence suggests that Socrates was quite famous in his lifetime as a, a soldier. He was a he would have been a decorated military hero, but he turned down the award for valor. He saved the life of an officer in battle and stood over him and protected him from the enemy when he was wounded and unhorsed. In fact, not only that, he did it twice. He also protected an Athenian general during a later battle after he also had been unhorsed. And uh, so Socrates was well known among Athenians as a, a military hero. And I'll tell you a little, a, a very little kind of illustration at Tom, which I think is because I think it's so important um, in understanding what's going on here. In Plato's Apology, which in my view, I don't know what you think, I think Plato's Apology is the single most influential philosophical text in antiquity. Mm. Um, it was, I think, probably the most widely read um, and best known philosophical text because it's a, a masterpiece. Uh, it's a beautiful mm. work of literature. And then it, Socrates is very unapologetic, ironically. like He gives his so-called <laughs> defence speech where he basically just carries on doing philosophy, which is the thing that he's on trial for, crazily. Um, so he, he, in the middle of that speech, or near the beginning of it, actually, he references his military service. And he says, you guys said that it was a great thing when I went out and risked my life to defend the city walls of Athens. Now I'm standing in court, you're all laughing at me and saying I'm crazy, risking my life here. I could be executed, and he was executed for doing this. But he said, I think I'm now defending something far more important than the walls of the city. I'm defending the virtue of the city and the pursuit of wisdom and philosophy. And without that, the city of Athens would be nothing. Like it would be pointless defending the walls if we didn't defend justice and wisdom within the city. And this metaphor, this analogy with military virtue, there are a number of other kind of metaphors and allusions to his military career, like are central to the apology and they reverberate, echo throughout the history of Western philosophy. And particularly the Stoics develop those metaphors. Marcus Aurelius writing 600 years later, Tom, some how is that for mental arithmetic? Like, <laughs> <laughs> about, I think, 600 years later, Marcus Aurelius wow. quotes precisely that passage um, where Socrates refers uh, to his military metaphor as a, his military service as a metaphor for the life of philosophy. And Marcus was a general. He commanded a, an army on the northern frontier as a, he was, a, I guess we would say, the commander-in-chief, but he was stationed himself at the front uh, during the Marcomannic War. And in the middle of that war, he quotes this passage from Socrates that compares being a philosopher with military values and military service. And so this militaristic metaphor for philosophy 
I, in a way, starts with the Apology of Socrates, and then it resonates throughout the history of philosophy, and the Stoics in particular really take it on board and develop it. And so it's no surprise that today, people that are serving in the armed forces would look at Stoicism and think there's something about this that kind of resonates with them. Yeah. Right, yeah. Provides a whole philosophy rationale for, for military... Um, being in the military, I guess. And the military life isn't about material gain. It's not uh, yeah. It's not about becoming <laughs> rich and famous, right? right? It's about honour and about service and stuff like that. So that kind of virtue ethic really resonates with the military code of honour, as it were, and, and mm. uh, military values. Interesting, people don't often see that at first. And that when I speak to uh, the Marines or people in the army or other branches of the armed forces about stoicism, that's what grabs them. Like they go, this virtue ethic stuff, like it, that's kind of how we think about things. Like, you know. Definitely, and it's such a um, a contrast, I guess, to consumerism mm-hmm. and um, the life that most people aspire to. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting at uh, poolside at a family home in California, and these people were quite wealthy, and the son had just returned home on military leave, and um, we we asked him, we like, you know, why did you? go into the military, what keeps you in there? And he's saying, God, country, core. God, country, core. He kept on saying it very sort of um, in, in an intense way. Mm-hmm. And um, now we talk about it, I can sort of see the incredible attraction um, that it provides for a lot of people because it's got nothing to do with normal yeah. consumer life. It's something more, something bigger. Yeah, it has to be a completely different set of values that lies outside of that, that sphere of, of, of rabid consumerism. Like, we don't have that in Toronto, obviously. There's no consumerism here. <laughs> like, you know, nice like, Canadians. Yeah, yeah everyone's, you know, just chilling. No, like, it's like modern life and uh, the internet and stuff all revolves around these kind of superficial values in a, in a sense, which was rampant consumerism. Um, we have in the, the technological era and the, the Stoics are really rebelling against that. They think it's crazy. Like, they think it's a huge con. It's like they literally call it smoke and mirrors, right? Mm-hmm. They have this word, tufos, which means mist or smoke. And they think uh, people's opinions are like uh, a mist or smoke, like smoke and mirrors, a big illusion. And they think the prevailing values of society, ancient Greece and today, are a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Like, you're born into a society where everybody thinks it's all about getting rich, uh, it's all about boosting your ego, it's about narcissism, hedonism, materialism, consumerism, all that stuff. And the Stoics want to say, it's all a big con, right? It's all smoke and mirrors. None of this stuff actually is what life is about. It's not what makes you happy. And everybody around the world on their own could potentially figure that out eventually. Like, but nevertheless, we all find ourselves thrown into this culture that seems to all intents and purposes all around us. Uh, to be drumming these values like down our uh, throats, like in, indoctrinating us into the the idea that these external goods are, are the be all and end all of life, and the Stoics, like many other philosophers, want us to snap out of this trance, wake up, and and realize that's not really what life is about. Mm. Yeah, that also reminds me um, as we talk again this book we recently covered. Um, about sort of Navy SEAL leadership. Um, And I guess the key themes from those books is taking full responsibility um, for your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
I guess the Stoics would call it, and I think Ryan Holiday mentions this, loving your fate. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe to end, um, Donald, do you want to say something about that? Yeah. Well, I'm going to say something about the semantics of it, first of all. So this phrase, I saw someone had it tattooed on them the other day. Like I was doing a little slideshow about Stoic tattoos, which is a thing, <laughs> like, apparently, right? And uh, people keep sending me pictures of Stoic tattoos. Mm. Like the, So people get Amor Fati tattooed, which means fata, that's mm. it. To, love yeah. your, to love your fate, right? Mm. It's not, in a mm. sense, well, it is real Latin, but... Um, it's not a phrase, funnily enough, that occurs in any of the extant Latin literature. It's coined, it seems, by Nietzsche, and Nietzsche uses it. Nietzsche was uh, the philosopher Nietzsche in the 19th century, famous German philosopher, wasn't actually a professor of philosophy. He was a professor of classical philology, so he studied mm. ancient Greek in particular, and uh, ancient Greek literature and language. And he uses this phrase Amar Fati, doesn't like typical Nietzsche, doesn't explain where he's taken it from, he just like says it mm-hmm. in one of his books, he uses it several times, it's part of his philosophy of life, it sounds very stoic, the way that he's describing it, but he doesn't really reference his sources, and it left people thinking, where did he get that from, did he just make that up, like it doesn't seem to occur in any surviving sources, and actually there is uh, an ancient source that uses this phrase, but typically... Uh, it's not in Latin, it's in Greek. And it's one of the maxims of the Delphic Oracle, like, uh, mm. which uh, has a Greek, ancient Greek version of the, the same phrase. And the Delphic Oracle really was the inspiration originally for many uh, schools of classical philosophy, including, including the Stoics. So this seems like a very, very ancient, very almost a precursor in the mists of time, like age, you know, before... Uh, the philosophies really even began to develop. There were these wisdom sayings that came from, and I want to mention this in passing as well, because people say there aren't many female voices in ancient philosophy. Well, there kind of are, but they're a little bit hidden in the background. And one of them is this woman called the Pythia, who's arguably the most influential woman in ancient Greece. She was a priestess of Apollo. And uh, the Pythia came up with these maxims that lie at the root of much Western philosophy. So you could say all Western philosophy, in a sense, perhaps is traceable back to a woman. Like, interestingly, or several women uh, who were successive priestesses, uh, the Delphic Temple of Apollo. So this idea of accepting your fate, being resigned to your fate, and adapting to it in order to, uh, for the obstacle to be the way, in order to adapt to misfortune and impediments to action, you first of all have to resign yourself to them and accept the reality of them. Um, mm. And so, you know, this is central. Uh, it's a recurring theme. Marcus Aurelius says many things uh, that resemble this idea of amor fati. Anyone that reads that, although Nietzsche doesn't say so, anyone that's familiar with ancient literature and reads what Nietzsche says about amor fati would immediately go, sounds like Stoicism. Like, clearly sounds like Stoicism. And so, for example, uh, Epictetus, in a famous, beautiful passage in Greek, um, in English, it's, it's it, almost as good. Uh, he says, uh, rather, um, do not desire, do not seek for things to be as you desire, but rather desire for things to be as they are, and your life will flow smoothly. Um, which is Amor Fati, basically, perhaps mm. put slightly more eloquently. 
And uh, yeah, this, uh, but this doesn't mean inaction. The Stoics want to reconcile emotional acceptance of misfortune or adversity with commitment to determined and self-disciplined action in the service of justice. So they want to, everything about Stoicism, like Socratic philosophy, is paradoxical. Like, Stoics want to have their cake and eat it. So Stoics want to say, we want to be committed to determined action, very self-disciplined. You look at the history of Stoicism, none of these guys were passive. Marcus Aurelius dragged himself all the way to Austria uh, to uh, to, to command this huge army of 140,000 men, the largest army uh, ever massed on a Roman frontier, in fact. So he, he wasn't just passively accepting of everything. He was very self-disciplined, went out of his comfort zone. Um, but the Stoics want to combine a kind of emotional acceptance of unpleasant, stressful or painful situations with determined action in accord with the reserve clause that we mentioned earlier. So they just don't get upset about misfortune or setbacks. When Rome was invaded... Uh, under Marcus Aurelius, he didn't go, oh my God, I can't believe it. These Germans have invaded. It's just awful. How dre- What dreadful people. He didn't complain about it. Epictetus puts it very simply. He says things much more bluntly. He just says to his students, do not say alas. Like, don't, don't complain. Like, just get on with it. Do not say alas. Like, just say the Germans have invaded. What are we going to do about it? Like, don't say, oh my God, the Germans have invaded, how awful. Like, do not say alas. So emotionally accept it and then commit to determined action in accord with the reserve clause. So saying, you know, I'm going to liberate Pannonia or Austria, fate permitting. Like, Mm. accepting in advance the possibility that I might not be successful. It's partly in the hands of fate. It's a very... It's a very complete system of thought, Stoicism. Yeah. Um, It always strikes me. Um, Well, uh, fascinating stuff. Um, This is the point, Donald, where we all um, give our take overall on the book, uh, Ryan Holiday's Obstacle is the Way, and give it a mark out of five. Corinne, what's your take on it? Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to give this one four out of five bookmarks. Um, I really liked how practical this book is. I like how um, it makes big picture philosophy ideas really simple and easy to apply right away. So I, I like it for that. Um, it's definitely short and it can be <laughs> one of those books that we label as kind of rah-rah, a little bit of you can do it and just do the right thing. And, uh, you know, so that's why I'll give it four out of five is just um, also also the, the like historical analogies. I'm just... I don't know. Maybe I'm just over the war analogies. Like, I, how many can we hear? How many, you know, like, I get it. It's important. What else we got? You know, I, I think I, I preferred the can't hurt me and the um, extreme ownership war analogies a little more because they were like personal. It was like, this is a story you may not have heard because I experienced it or someone very close to me experienced it. But just looking at historical battles in the lens of history, I, I don't know. It's not not my cup of tea. So... Uh, but in general, I do like the idea of expecting things to go wrong instead of expecting them to go right. And, um, you know, and and I like the idea of changing obstacles into opportunities. So for those reasons, I give it a four. Mm-hmm. Great. Donald? 
Well, I, I was going to give it uh, five stars because I like it and I'm quite generous like that. And then I thought, you guys are going to think I'm biased because I'm <laughs> friends with Ryan. So I thought, I'll take a star <laughs> off for that. <clears throat> and then Karen said she thought it was a bit short. And I thought, yeah, but I like short books. Like, it's <laughs> difficult to write short. It's hard to write short books. It's true. Uh, so true. I'm giving it another half a star for that. So <clears throat> by this convoluted method, like, I've arrived at the rating of four and a half stars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good um yeah i mean for me as you mentioned at the start um uh i mean i've written about these older self-help books um where the author talks about hundreds of different people and how they their rags to riches story how they develop themselves so i agree i definitely see this all the little potted histories in that tradition and i love that sort of thing um so I, I just enjoyed it for that alone. Um, and it's, it's also a very clear, simple reminder of Stoic philosophy. So I'll also um, give it a four. Uh, Corinne, what do we know about what Ryan's up to at the moment? Well, it sounds like Donald might have a better idea because uh, they're good friends. He probably can just text him and say, hey, what are you up to? But um, uh, so <laughs> I know today, if you want to get more of Ryan Holiday's ideas, uh, he writes regularly on Medium. So he's got lots of different like uh, blogs and articles that come out there. Uh, he's sold over two million copies of his books. So people are uh, definitely reading what, what Ryan Holiday writes in his books. Um, so this one, Obstacle is the Way, came out in 2014. Since then, uh, he's pu- he's published like about a dozen books. And um, he's got a new one coming out this June that he is writing with NBA player Chris Bosch called Letters to a Young Athlete that is in pre-sale now. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Stoicism and basketball. I'm excited to hear this uh, correlation. Stoicism, basketball. I wouldn't put them together, <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think well, the other one I've read is Ego is the Enemy. I think that's also been very popular. So mm-hmm. maybe it'd be good to another, do another episode on that yeah. at some point. You guys <laughs> said earlier that this book wasn't written that long ago, and I thought, oh, it seems like ages ago because he's written so many books since then. Mm. Like, yeah. Because he writes a lot of books. I think he does about one a year. And actually, he just brought out recently um, a children's book about stoicism. Like It's illustrated, almost like a graphic novel kind of thing and it's called the boy who would be king if i remember mm-hmm. rightly yeah. it just came yeah. out very recently mm-hmm. so that's new as well and in terms of basketball there are many sports coaches that are interested in uh, in stoicism uh, basketball baseball um you know uh american football uh, what's his name michael was it michael lombardi from, mm-hmm. in the nfl uh, did our mm-hmm. stoicism course i saw him talking about stoicism in an interview how it influences his uh, his views uh, about coaching and so on so i think it's the coaching uh, perspective mm. that people and taking responsibility some of the themes that you mentioned already stoicism uh, particularly appeals to it and all the stoics did sports right because back in the day like uh, greek youths and roman youths all wrestled and uh, did pancratian and boxed uh, Marcus Aurelius was apparently really good at this Roman ball game that's like a precursor of rugby. And he, he also boxed and wrestled. And, and, and so just as an aside to conclude, you know, in the meditations, Marcus uh, has a number of metaphors where he says he compares philosophy and life to wrestling and boxing. He said the gladiator could lose his sword or put it down, 
but the philosopher always has his precepts with him. And so like the Pancratius, to arm himself, all he has to do is clench his fist, or metaphorically, all he has to do is concentrate on the principles that he carries with him everywhere he goes. Um, so he's using these very familiar metaphors that are drawing on his military experience, also his experience of, of doing sports. And I, I can see why it would therefore uh, naturally appeal to sports coaches and players. So what do you think? You're going to put the uh, letters to a young athlete on your to-be-read pile? <laughs> Is that to what? me or Tom? Or both of them? Uh, like, bo- I'm going to bo- read it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm curious. Maybe it'll inspire me to actually go and do some exercise for a change. Mm. I do, I yeah, don't. I should probably do the uh, do the actual exercise yeah. before reading anything. <laughs> uh, well, that's probably a good note to end with. Um, don't forget that we've also got the actual book insight on um, on Ryan Holiday's book. So listen or watch that as well because we go into a more detail, more systematic uh, approach to the book and look at the key themes. Um, so yeah, make sure you listen to that. Um, and also keep uh, watching us, listening to us. Um, we'll have a new episode for you next week. That's right. And Donald, any um, place that you want to share our with our listeners or viewers on how to connect with you or your work or any new upcoming projects you want to share about? Yeah, like lots of things. If they want to find me, my website's just donaldrobertson.name and they can find all my stuff there, .name instead of .com. And uh, if they're interested in Stoicism, the Modern Stoicism non-profit organizations are kind of hub. It's uh, just modernstoicism.com. And things we've got on the go, we've got the Stoicon X military conference coming up pretty soon. So you can just Google that, you'll find the information. It's virtually free. It's for, uh, by donation from $1 for a ticket. We've got um, Ryan is speaking at it. He's interviewing uh, HR McMaster. Uh, former U.S. Uh, National Security Advisor, Lieutenant General, and uh, Lieutenant mm. General Frank Keeney is all uh, is also speaking at it. And uh, we've also got Stoicon X Women coming up uh, because we thought there are a lot of women that are interested in Stoicism, and we, we kind of felt it'd be good to give them a little bit more of a a, a platform because um, sometimes their, their voices weren't as prominent. Uh, they're a significant. But it's about 30% of the audience for Stoicism are, are women. Um, so kind of like, it's, ma- it's male-dominated, but nevertheless, there are a lot of women that are interested in Stoicism. So we, we thought we, we'd, it'd be useful to give them a little bit more of a platform. And uh, we've got an anniversary event for Marcus Aurelius's. It's a 1,900th anniversary of his birthday. <laughs> so we've got an event for that, which is proving very popular. And also I've got my secret project, which I don't tell anyone about, which is to oh. rebuild Plato's Academy, but that's a secret. Oh. Yeah. So we, we've got a project going in Athens where we want to kind of have a, an international conference center uh, for philosophy and uh, 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 for uh, an event space in the original location of Plato's Academy, which we're oh, going yeah. to be launching the website for that in the next few days, actually. So if anyone's That's interested, amazing. they might want to check that out. Yeah, that's super exciting. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, include links to those events and to your awesome. upcoming website in our show notes so that we can connect everyone. And don't worry, your secret is safe with us. We'll keep it between you, us, YouTube, and all yeah. of the podcast channels. Cool. Awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Donald. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And I uh, hope folks will tune in next week for a new nonfiction book to help you with your work in life.